Chris, uh, I've been really looking forward to talking to you today because you are a print-on-demand veteran. You've been in the in the business for ages now, and you're also really, really skilled at mid-journey, which is a really interesting and valuable uh, combination these days. So um, I kind of want to start talking off about your print-on-demand story, where you started, uh, where you've been selling, and some of your lessons that you learned along the way and then transition into mid-journey and how we can sort of utilize that tool now to make uh, the print-on-demand life a lot easier. So let's start off with with your story. Like where when did you start with print-on-demand and where did you start selling? Sure, sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. We, we need to it. go back pretty far. Um, so okay. I got into, into print-on-demand in 2008. Uh, so that's that's been quite a while now, 15 years. And the the way I got into print on demand, I don't know whether it's um, a common way to, to slip into the industry, but at the time, I was just out of university and I had gone on a backpacking trip, as many people do <laughs> once they finished with their studies. I was in Southeast Asia. And then after a couple of months, I... I came back to Europe and I actually already had a contract for a for a job uh, at a consultancy firm and I was really looking forward to just starting to work you know everything you had worked towards is finally you know converging and then like let's go and but mind you this was 2008 and I think we all kind of know what was in 2008 uh, while I was on the beaches of Thailand for, for the younger people watching, just oh, sorry for the younger people. <laughs> yeah, the great financial crisis is what they call it nowadays. Um, so while I was in the beaches of Thailand, the world was going to shit. And um, when I got back, I unfortunately was informed by my to be um, partner, as in boss, that unfortunately the firm is deciding to let go everybody that they can let go, and you know, future employees are always easier to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I literally, uh, I got a severance package, a very small one, um, even before I had worked a single day. And as funny as it sounds now, it was quite depressing at the time. And mm -hmm. I was stuck in Berlin, um, working on tons of applications for new jobs, just like everybody else. And at some point you reach a t like this point where you just can't apply anymore. Like, yes, you're just waiting for the next round. <laughs> to finally mm. happen. And in the meantime, I said, okay, well, wasn't there this spreadsheet thing that I kind of discovered while I was working on my thesis about startups? It's like, I like to design. Ah, let's maybe just try to design something and see whether I can sell this. And then I, I actually created my first few designs, spent way too much time on them and uh, uploaded them. But at the time, it was all still very fresh and new. And I literally got my first few sales within, I don't know, a couple of days. And when I did, I just realized, wow, that was easy. <laughs> and, and since I had so much time on my hands, I just continued to create more and more and more. And it just grew and grew and grew. And yeah, and by the time I started my new job then, I was already making um, four digits on the side, which was great because I needed the money. <laughs> was that sort of the really early stages of Spreadshirt when it was just launched, or um, I wouldn't say it was the it was it was obviously compared to today it was the really early days, but it was not the 
earliest of days. So at that time, they had already internationalized. So they had at that day, you know, those back in those days, they even tried to enter the Japanese market, which they eventually failed and just retreated. But uh, they already had um, quite a big business at the time, but obviously not nowhere clear. I mean, nowhere near what they are today. Um, Mm. I think the point where they are today only really kicked off when they started running their first TV ads in 2010 or 11, I think, which was a risky move for them at the time because it's expensive. And you got really successful with Spreadshirt specifically, didn't you? So I think within a few years, you you were pulling some really big numbers. So what what were those? Yeah, exactly? so it's people are quite surprised when I say this because it was because they don't associate this with, with Spreadshirt. But back in the day, um, I managed to scale it up just Spreadshirt across EU and US um, to a total of a just over 100,000 euros um, in 2012. There is a reason, however, why this was, why I was able to do this. Back in the day, I must admit that the way their algorithms worked was very, very heavily, um, well, it, it favored those who had already had success. And they had no limit to how much exposure you could get on the front page. So, mm-hmm. so if you're, if you sold a lot, you would get a lot of exposure. Um, and nowadays it works differently because they try to distribute it and limit it per account, right? But, um, but yeah, so a lot of the designs that sell today, I mean, many of them were copied from me. Um, I obviously got inspired by others as well, but it's part of the game. Um, yeah. So, so you're not making a hundred thousand on Spreadshirt anymore, but no, 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 no. That was no, your no. high phase in sort of 2012. No, no. Um, I don't think anybody's making a hundred thousand on Spreadshirt nowadays. No. Yeah. Yeah. Where are most of those sales coming from the EU platform or US? Because I know it's sort of split. Um, or yeah. at least it is now. I don't know if it was back then. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would say about eighty percent of that was coming from the EU platform, mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. So the first reason was that for some reason the the demand in the US was very different. So you 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 couldn't just upload whatever you had from the EU and put it on on the US platform and and just think that would work equally as well. But it it, it just didn't, um, and also. This is a tiny detail that a lot of people don't know. Back in the day, Spreadshirt's primary business wasn't as much marketplace driven, but very much their create your own designer. And the detail is that back in the day, they had, they had these, uh, what do you call it? Plot printing, where they had these foils that were cut out and you were limited to three colors. So it wasn't actually DTG printing as you would normally do today. And... The, that type of design, like the very sort of, not modest, but like simplistic, clean design was very popular in Europe. It's very popular. And, and the fact that you could change colors basically meant that the create your own designer was very, very um, successful there. Um, but yeah, so that's it was an 80-20 split roughly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the customization aspect. Customization aspect has always been quite big with yeah, Spreadshirt, yeah. has it? Yeah. yeah. In another aspect, just uh, just to add, is that it was very difficult back in the day to publish your designs on all of the EU marketplaces because they initially tried to limit that, that you couldn't actually do it. You had to stay within your local market. And in order to publish on another marketplace, you would have to create another account for that. But there was a bug in their code 
um, that got exploited by a lot of people who, who were big sellers, where you could relatively easily take your design on the one platform and just spread it on the others. And uh, all right, yeah, okay, so that worked so you could well. you could you could accelerate your growth with that little trick. And yeah. I'm guessing not too many people knew about it or knew how to do it. Um, it was so you had a yeah. you had a big advantage. It was it wasn't as easy to do. It wasn't you you had to figure out how it's done. But then I mean, technically anybody could do it, but you had to understand how it's done. And it wasn't yeah. a secret to be honest. Uh, it was, but you had to do the extra work. Would you say that spreadsheet is still a, a good platform to start out with today? It depends on what your objective is. <laughs> if your objective is to learn. Then I would say, yeah, it's 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 worth also spending time on Spreadshirt because it's I mean it's easy to get into, um, it's an easy pricing system. It's it's also maybe a different target audience, so you'll get an insights into what different customer groups buy and what they don't buy, and and every every single marketplace algorithm works a bit differently, so it teaches you to kind of adapt to different situations. Monetarily, I must admit nowadays that it would not be the primary place where I would focus my energy, um, mm, just because. The, yeah, the potential has has dropped since then. Yeah, they've grown as a platform, of course, as well. But but it's just that the way that they've chosen to compete in the market makes it considerably less attractive for you as a seller, unfortunately, be mm, because mm. their comp their competitive their competitiveness in the market goes. Is that your expense? That's how I would put it. You also obviously uh, started to sell on other platforms besides Spreadshirt um, yeah. after that. So um, you're on Merch by Amazon, I believe. So mm -hmm. uh, what's your experience been like on there? Um, I think you started quite early, didn't you? Yeah, I got into Merch by Amazon 2016-17. So uh, yeah, so pretty much when, when things really started to kick off and when Merch by Amazon was still primarily meant to allow developers of games to easily produce merchandise. Oh, you don't know the oh, you don't know the story. Oh, well the the developer thing caught me off guard, but I no, I have heard this before that it was yeah. for specific merchandise for brands or something. Yeah, so yeah. so the, the the origins of Merch by Amazon is just, well, let's give game developers, indie game developers an easy way to produce merchandise for their games. And then these print on demand people come along and just completely abuse the system to, to do something else. <laughs> and the way Amazon deals with these things, though, is good because they just realize, okay, if that's what people are going to use it for and there's money in it, let's uh, ramp this up. And that's what they did. Uh, so, yeah, with the early tier systems that were very restrictive, um, getting out of what, tier What were they like? Because I don't know the... The very early ones getting out of tier 10 was so difficult getting your first sales and then just waiting to be randomly tiered up because you hit the right sales number and uh, back in the day people were still buying their own shirts just to get out of tier 10 um, because i think it was tier 10 and tier 25 but things really started to change once you got into tier 100 because then you could experiment more and before it was really tough because you would upload a design, see whether it catches on, but you had so little slots, so you would delete it again and upload something else. And um, mm. 
but so that, that also made, of course, attractive because it, it obviously limits access to the marketplace uh, and makes sure that only people who are roughly knowing what they're doing um, sort of get to the higher stages. But today, of course, it's very different. No? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the tier system is still in place, but I, I yeah. get what you're saying. It sort of makes it... it I think one benefit of it as well is that it gamifies it, right? You have to actually put some work into it and learn how yeah. to get better. Whereas with something like Spreadshirt, Redbubble, you can just spam random stuff. Yeah. And if it doesn't yeah. sell, who cares? Because yeah. you can just upload more. Yeah. Um, so that definitely has its benefits. But no, Amazon is kind of funny. It is kind of funny that Amazon sort of throws a tool out and it doesn't matter how it gets used as long as they make money. It's, it's the same with KDP, isn't it? I think KDP was meant for authors to publish their books and now you know people are doing coloring books all sorts of things notebooks um so same sort of thing there um so which platforms would you recommend nowadays to people to start on where the potential is higher than spreadsheet if it's not just about practicing yeah um where should they go well so i i personally had um a surprisingly good experience on redbubble to be honest i know that a lot of people don't like Redbubble because they just don't like the way their system works and and to be fair their platform has also changed over the years of course um, but I actually did surprisingly well with stickers right and if you sell a lot of stickers they add up they add up a lot and um, and and the nice thing with Redbubble was that they had I mean they had access to hoodies and stuff like that and higher like premium products much earlier than than Amazon, right? And so that made it attractive back in the day. Um, nowadays, I would still focus on Redbubble as well, simply because it has, well, not focus, but pick it as one of your, your platforms, because just in the end, what you need to think about is you are, you need to remember where are you going to invest your time? And I think for me, Merge by Amazon is a given, so you should definitely go for that. But you might have trouble sort of getting through your tiers at the beginning and or maybe even getting accepted. That, that's still a mm. thing from what I hear. And, uh, and by the way, maybe maybe like don't don't buy accounts from shady places, like right? because you never know. Um, but um, basically focus on the sites that get the most traffic. That's what I just say. So and you can use all of the different free tools on the web. It doesn't matter whether they're estimates or not. Um, but you can use similar web and stuff like that and just look for the top sites in terms of web traffic because web traffic immediately translates into sales potential. And then the only other factors that matter in the end is how easy is it for you to get exposure on that platform? And, and what I also personally like a lot is the more complicated, as in like challenging the platform is, the better it is for those who are willing to go that extra mile, right? Because if it's too much work for 80% of the people, well, that means you've already eliminated 80% of your competition. And if you're willing to do that work, well, then potentially you can make a lot. What would be an example? What would be an example for that then? What would you say is it like a challenging platform that eliminates 80% of the people or... (laughs) yeah, so so challenging is may not be what you expect to, me to say now, right? But have you ever used Society Six? Oh, yeah, in the early days, yeah, yeah, in the early days, right? So Society Six, 
you could make a lot of money on Society6, but you had to go through the pain of how their products were published and created. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, let's not, we're not going to argue it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. Still is. And it still is. But if you, if you were willing to do that and because also you maybe you just didn't have the option of going to merge by Amazon. Well, then that could, I mean, that might be, uh, you know, well-invested time, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did that a little bit at the start and then I just used upload automation for it because yeah. it's like 20 minutes per design. Yeah. So yeah, I was one of the 80% that gave up, but it, well, yeah. I found a different way to do it, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but no, that's a good point. Sometimes a, a more challenging route can can be more fruitful um, if you stick through it and you work work your way through. Um, that's a really good tip, I think. One topic that people mostly struggle with, especially if they're starting out with printer demand, is finding niches or doing niche research just in general. So as someone, you know, you've been in this for 10 years, how do you pick your niches or how do you do niche research? So first of all, I don't pick any particular niche, right? So it's not like, I don't say, okay, um, fishing is a good niche or hunting is a good niche. That's that's basically not how I approach things. And because any, any niche, especially if you're going on such a high level, of course, that it is just too high level. You always need to look at sub niches, right? And, and then each one individually can be either interesting or not. The way I usually do my research, if I have the time to do it, of course, because it is a bit of work, is that I would use a keyword research tool, and it doesn't really matter which one you do, uh, you take, as long as the rough, like the relative search volume amounts are, are in line. Try to figure out which are the niches that are getting a decent or a very good amount of search volume. But that doesn't mean, well, go with the one that has the most, because then you'll end up in phishing. And if you just go for phishing in general, then you're going to have a tough time to, to sell something nowadays. But if you look at the sub niche for phishing, let's say for, I'm just going to pick something now, right? Let's be it, be it bass or catfish or whatever, it doesn't matter, or a certain subtype, then look at that search volume and then always put it try to put it into a relation with the competition now the question of course that people have is how do i figure out where the competition is well there are indicators of course you can look how many listings are they there what is the quality of your of the listings that are that are already on the platform and then i try to sort of just create a ratio right you can do a 2 by 2 matrix and you just go market potential which is in terms of search volume and then you've got competition and then you can plot it and then based on that you can easily sort of categorize niches into really attractive somewhat attractive also somewhat attractive but different or just yeah don't don't touch it because it's a waste of time so that's like the broad sort of initial approach that i do and that doesn't take very long once i do pick one before we move on to the next step, sorry. Yeah, sure. Um, a, a couple of things that I think would help people out is yeah. you said you have a look at the search volume, right? Which mm -hmm. which tools do you recommend or which tools do you use to yeah. actually figure out the search volume for these specific niches? It, so I, I used to use 
uh, keyboard tool I/O, but that is a, a fairly expensive tool. And nowadays, I would not necessarily say that you need to do that. Other people would use stuff like Merchant Former or Merchant Ninja. It, it doesn't really matter, right? As long as they provide some some form of keyword search volume, um, then that's useful. If it if it's something that if it's a platform that can give you merch by Amazon or sorry, just Amazon search volume and keyword tool IO, for example, does that, then then that's obviously even better if you're selling on Amazon. But also because Amazon is always a good reference point, right? Because it's heavily consumer focused. Um, Google is trickier because it mixes together with lots of other types of search. And the I, I can't remember what the statistic was, but there was a statistic about the US that 92% of all purchasing initial purchasing search queries are big are started on Amazon and not on not on Google. And, and this may have changed now in the past few years with Google Shopping, but um, but it says a lot about the very different type of search intent that goes into Amazon than it goes than goes into Google. That being said, um, you can easily just use something like keywords everywhere as well, which I personally find really good because it literally shows your keywords everywhere, <laughs> and it's uh, it's also very very cheap by comparison. And again, it's not about the absolute numbers, right? It's about the ratios. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And and the the second part of that was the competition. So mm -hmm. can we say that's just the search results on Amazon or would you yeah, look on yeah. different platforms? Because I sometimes check yeah. Redbubble T public as well yeah. to get a feel of, of different platforms, not just one. Yeah. So competition is 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 di more difficult, of course, because uh, as you say, it's it's different on every platform. Um, the reason why I, I usually recommend Amazon, neither way, uh, I mean, anyway, is because Amazon just gives you so much data, right? It's there's just so much. It's just abundant, and uh, including bestseller rankings and everything, and of course, Redbubble. Is not the same type of platform, but it's reasonable to expect that it will be similar. Now, the competition on Amazon will probably be higher, I would say, simply because it's such an attractive market. But there's just so many different 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 factors that go into it. You can also look at how how many designs have like ratings, reviews, and are reviews and ratings relevant on that platform. So it's not just do they have it, but is it also relevant for how customers make decisions on that platform? And that's that's different everywhere. For Spreadshirt, for example, reviews don't really make a difference. They have these reviews, but they're just for the products in general, not for the designs. So it's it, it depends on a number of factors, right? Mm, yeah, on Amazon, on Amazon, if you see a lot of shirts in that niche with a lot of reviews, then that is a lot of competition, essentially. Yeah. But, then, um, but, but it also important. depends on the quality, right? So, so if a listing, just because there's a lot of listings, doesn't mean that they're all relevant competition. So, if you if you have a very badly optimized listing, or not you, or if the competition just doesn't have very well optimized listings, then it doesn't matter that there's a hundred thousand listings; they're never going to show up anyway. Um, you can easily slip up into in in the rankings just because. 
you you optimize for a particular keyword, and it may be a different keyword from what the majority are optimizing on. So it's it like one of the things that I particularly recommended people at the beginning when they start out is especially since you're not too experienced and you don't have the, the weight uh, you know ex of experience to really push yourself into a, a like a very very competitive niche uh, is pick something with a quote and then check let's say it's uh, we'll stick with fishing right but so instead of checking whether people are searching for fishing t-shirt just look at your quote and just check are people searching for the quote if people are specifically searching for the quote, then it will show up in the autocomplete. And if you then optimize just for that quote, then yes, you will get less people, or sorry, not less people, but you'll, you won't tap into the big market, but you will tap into the smaller market and you will do it in a much better way than the guy who is optimizing for the larger niche. And that's how you get your sales, especially at the beginning. And you can move up, and this is the benefit. Once you get some sales there in the small market, yes. you can move up to the broad one. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's cool. You you had a you had an oil rig example, I think, or analogy that I heard in in a past yeah. podcast, yeah. which was quite cool for this. Um, so, do you want to yeah, recite sure. that? So uh, the reason I used the oil analogy was because my um, uh, b before my my sort of self employment uh, uh, life, I was worked for a large multinational oil company. And uh, I, I like to use the analogy because it's very, very fitting. Um, so the way oil exploration works is that you drill a lot of holes and you don't really know for sure how much is in the ground. You have, a, you can kind of guess because there's tools to help you estimate the, the, the seismographics and everything and geology, but you won't really know until you drill. And once you start drilling that hole, Sometimes you'll see a little bit of oil seep through. That's a good sign. Um, but sometimes you'll also strike nothing and then it's just, okay, move on. And then sometimes you'll hit absolute gold and then it'll just shoot up. And then once it does, that's when I say, okay, you found one hole here, but all my other holes were all over the place somewhere else because I was kind of started you know, trying to just uh, uh, cover as much space as possible. But once I find oil here, well, then I start checking around that hole. That well, and then uh, that those are basically the sub niches. Sub niches. Then you that then you that you then sort of dive into um, within the larger, broader niche. Um, and each one of those wells will be different. Some will be more attractive, some less. But uh, but that that's mm. proven to be very very effective for me. Yeah, I can attest to that as well. It's sort of. Sometimes you find a working concept or a working sub-niche and then you try similar stuff for similar yeah. niches or you apply the concept to other niches and it just works. And you have you have to do a lot of groundwork, you know, covering all that space to be able to say, you know, I need to go deeper here. You just yeah. can't do it from the start. Um, and you've actually got a, um, a service as well or sort of a report on niches, right, where... Mm -hmm you do niche research for people, which I thought was really interesting. And uh, some people listening might be interested. So how does that exactly work? And, yeah, where, so, and where, where can people find it as well? Yeah, so so the um, it's called the Heidorn Report because my last name is Heidorn. 
um you're, we're gonna have to spell that out for people because it's, it's I'll, the, I'll put it in the description yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, but um it, the reason it's called that way is because one of my customers at some point they just started calling it that and then i i just embraced it and said okay we're just going to rename it that way it's it's just awesome brand branding okay and so i started this 2000 in 2009 uh, sorry 2019 and it was just sort of an experiment that we did at the time, checking with a lot of people whether it's something that they, they were interested in. And it's a it's a bi-weekly merch strategy and research report where basically you get two to three reports each month. And every time it's an it's a new sort of broad niche with three sub-niches that I then really break down in tons of detail. So like really quantitative, like with, with statistics, charts. Uh, numbers, keyword research, also with ideas for designs, though, of course, you're not supposed to necessarily copy them, but sure, if you want to, you can. <laughs> um, and just a, a whole bunch of inspiration and guidance. And, and it's it's mainly targeted at people who maybe they know how to do this, but they just don't have the time, right? Because they've got a full-time job, they've got family, and they just want to focus on designing. And so this is meant to help those people. And the strategy part, which is basically every month or so that you get one of the older reports that I've, I've basically, just because you're sort of starting late, it doesn't mean that you don't get the old ones. You just get them slower. Um, they cover a lot of the foundational basics and skills, but also advanced tactics that, that I've used over the years. Um, and they can be applied to pretty much anything in e-commerce or online marketing, but it is specifically in this case, in the context of merch, well, merch by Amazon and print on demand in general. And um, yeah, so that's still going. And uh, I mean, just to give you an idea, it's been around for a while. We're at number 30, sorry, 85 or now for research reports. And, uh, and there's roughly 18 strategy reports. Yeah. That's really interesting because I mean, I'm, I'm the same myself. I prefer designing. I find research quite boring and it takes so much effort. So I think a lot of people can relate to that. And um, yeah, just getting some guidance and examples, I think would be really helpful, um, especially to beginners. And yeah, uh, so that's it in terms of niche research. I think there's a lot of valuable insight there. Um, how do you approach writing your listings then once you've found mm -hmm. a niche, once you've created some designs? Yeah. So, so this is also, of course, something that that changes all the time, right? Because the platforms change the rules. Um, then sometimes certain things uh, just don't work anymore. Uh, so I'm I'm going to use the Merch by Amazon uh, example just as a specific one. Um, back in the day, people would just put in the search terms directly, like verbatim, and put them in as much as they can. And unfortunately, that was very very effective at the beginning. <laughs> Um, it, it obviously didn't do much for the customer experience, which is why they eventually um, changed the way those rules work. I, and this is what I kind of also teach in all those reports, is that basically, if you're going to optimize for a specific keyword, then do that. But that doesn't mean that you're supposed to stuff your listing with keywords. But instead, and far too many people do not do this, just put yourself into the shoes of the customer. And what is the kind of product listing that you would like to see? And not just in the sense that this is what I would like it to look like, but 
whenever you are searching for something to buy and you enter a certain search term, what is the listing that you would then want to see that will appeal to you and make you click on it first? And then once you look at the bullets, con convince you to buy. And it's, it, and, it's, and it's not, oh, the best design idea for your father's birthday necessarily. You can use those kind of things, but but you don't have to. Like, like a lot of people stick to this like as a concept religiously, but it can be so many things. Like, and, and the more you know about the niche, the easier it will be for you to craft um, listings that are appealing, that speak to the audience. Like um, the, it's it's just sometimes it's like also these these small little details jargon that certain niches use uh, and then it will speak to them and then they'll just think oh yeah th th this is exactly what i'm looking for and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah oh, and what would be yeah what would be an example of um a bad listing then that doesn't speak to people is it well, like yeah. copy copy and paste the same keywords just lots of commas or yeah 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 so any anything that's just stuffing keywords in there is is in my opinion and if it like if it sounds and reads unnaturally, like if you, uh, well, let, let me think. What's an example? Um, what's a good quote? Just uh, uh, I'd rather be fishing. I don't know. Yeah, I was saying I'd rather be I'd rather be fishing. Right? Don't try to stuff "I'd rather be fishing" into the title, the brand, and both bullets. Like, no, like it's fine if it's in there somewhere once. That's fine, and ideally, probably just in the title, right? Um, and then in the in the bullets, I would I would use copy that is, and when I say copy, I mean like sort of a wording um, that is something that people from that niche can relate to. And, and if it's something that's related to a certain occasion, right? A birthday or something, then sure, fine. And then you'll use copy that fits into that. But uh, like, don't just plaster it. Like, the, the point is not to put it into every single piece of text. Mm -hmm. It just okay. looks weird. So, so your focus is more on um, making it a readable description that will appeal to customers rather than filling in as many different keywords as you can. Yeah, because in the end, so my interpretation of how the Amazon algorithm works nowadays, and again, this is just specific to Amazon, right? Because all of the other platforms have different algorithms anyway. So you can't always apply it everywhere. But the approach that I choose is very easy to apply everywhere because it's just a principle. It's just a principle, make it natural, make it addressed to the customer and just answer the questions that the customer may have about that shirt. And the weirder it looks, the less likely they are to even read it. And I land on so many product descriptions where I just look at this description and like, yeah, I would have bought it until I read that. <laughs> okay. And then it, because it, it kind of, it's a reflection of the seller, right? Um, mm, yeah. It kind of put, puts you off, makes it look unprofessional in a sense. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and it, remember customers don't know that your listing is merged by Amazon they will think that you're just one of many sellers. And if they see like gibberish, well, they're probably going to think it's from China or something. And that may be a reason for them not to buy. 
That's true. I often read reviews on Amazon shirts and it says, oh, this seller was really fast or really slow, or they don't even realize it's Amazon selling this stuff. So yeah, yeah, you kind of can give it a bad image if your description looks um, kind of dodgy. Moving on from that topic, then this is the last question before we move into the mid-journey topic, by the way, Mm -hmm. for anyone who's listening for that. From your experience, because you've sold a lot of designs um, in the past, what sorts of designs sell best? And and what I'm thinking about here is uh, don't give away your best niches. I, I mean, is it original designs? Is it designs with just text, with graphics or both? Like people I think often don't know, um, should I copy the best sellers or should I come up with a new idea? So this is obviously very subjective, right? Because um, the more you focus your own work on, the more likely you're just going to find like confirmation of what you're doing. But my my personal experience has been that, and this it doesn't matter which platform you're on, is that humor will always sell and like if it's tasteful and anything that is associated with some form of a statement right will almost always not not every statement will sell well but they in my from my experience they're much easier to sell than something that is purely just a graphic purely just a design it doesn't mean that the design is not important like the illustration part but just throughout all of my experience, I have always, almost always combined a text. And usually it was just some form of quote um, or a pun or whatever with a high quality illustration to complement it. And usually that's been a very, very good recipe for me. In, in Back in the day, you wouldn't have to do such high quality illustration. There it would have been enough to do an icon in a color and then just text in a different color. Mm-hmm. Um, but t- today, of course, the, the the expectation is a bit higher on the customer's end. And um, but but generally, those always work. The only difference, though, is again, do, like don't just do all of the stuff that's been done a hundred million times. Um, the only reason I was able to remain reasonably ex- successful over time was because I always tried to look for the thing that no one had been doing yet. Or, or very few had been doing. And that's a lot of work, of course. That's the research part. But the payoff is potentially very, very high and very long-term um, because you manage to kind of entrench yourself in a new kind of market. Um, and what I've also been very successful with is the more specific something is to a niche, in terms of also the, the, the words that are used, the lingo, or like a, an inside joke, which is very often not obvious to the outside uh, observer. Mm. Um, the outside observers don't they don't find those niches because they don't understand why they work. Uh, to to give you an idea, and, and and this is kind of a borderline design because it was um, it was kind of using like a, a very subtle, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, reference to a musical, a very subtle reference. And when I say subtle reference, it was just a few numbers. That's it. But unless you understood what those numbers refer to in that story, you wouldn't know what the, the, the design is about. But everybody who knew that story and was a fan knew exactly what it was about. Mm-hmm. And those that's... 
and that's the fun for the person wearing the shirt as well is that yes. nobody get nobody gets what they're wearing and then yeah. there'll be one person walking past like ah yeah that's yeah that's perfect so looking for inside jokes which is hard because if you don't get them yourself it's it's it's, um, it's really hard it's really hard but but once you find them they sell for a very long time very reliably and, hmm. and you almost get no competition almost and you, and you can find them in niches that you don't necessarily understand understand or are interested in because one of yeah. my best sellers yeah. one of my best sellers is a pun that again is somewhat inside some of an inside joke in a, in a topic yeah. Um, and yeah i'm not interested in that hobby either but yeah. it has worked for me and i was sort of the first to spread that design across multiple platforms which helped so um yeah that's definitely good advice how did midjourney come onto your radar then uh, with all of this so the the link to midjourney was not due to print on demand so it, it was um towards the beginning of last year um you know as, as some people may be able to imagine if they've been in the game for a longer time is that at some point you you feel like you've almost seen everything and you kind of need a taste of something new um just just also to see something else and and and, and you need some you know uh, intellectual stimulation and so I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna check some check out something else. And it was not my journey initially. It was just a whole bunch of I had a blog that just covered a whole bunch of tech, and I found that just by writing about topics, I would learn more about them. And then sometimes I would find something that, that I'm interested in. Um, and then one day I just ran into Midjourney. Right, everybody was talking about Midjourney in August last year, July August. And initially I I decided, okay, this is interesting because I've always been interested in um design and art and i also have a penchant for technical stuff so let's let's try this out and i got a subscription and i burnt through my subscription within two hours <laughs> and and then i decided i need to cancel this right now because otherwise i'm going to get addicted to this and not do anything productive anymore Ah, it and, seems like it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it it did for two months, uh, okay. and then and then two months later, I keep I just kept seeing it, and then it kept getting better. I was like, hmm, maybe I need to dive deeper into this because I keep seeing myself get attracted to it, and um, and then that's what I did, and I got really really deep into it uh, around September October. And really try to start understanding how does this work, and it it just felt very very natural to me because it's a convergence of so many things that I enjoy. So it's 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 the art aspect, um, but also very technical because it's essentially you're prompting in a command line, right? Which is which feels strange to most people. Um, but since I I'm at least on a hobby level, I'm a I can I can program and code. Um, it, it did not feel foreign to me. Uh, maybe a bit weird, but but it was kind of cool. And uh, and then I started to realize that people, not everybody really understood how it worked or what to prompt. I kept seeing so many people prompting the weirdest things. and like, that's never going to work, my friend, never. Um, or it doesn't do what you think it does. Um, and then I just kept getting deeper, deeper, deeper. And then... In December, I decided, hey, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna try out a YouTube channel. And 
I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I always felt like, oh, that's going to be weird speaking in front of a camera to myself. Uh, crickets, nobody really listening. Um, but then it just it turned out really great. Um, yeah, and it was lots of fun. And I mean, I've been doing this now for what? Eight months now. No, nine months. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, time time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. Um so now that you're quite well versed in, in mid journey and you've spent a lot of time with it, what um what do you think are some of the best print and demand products that you can create with it? Or what is it most useful for, perhaps? Well, I think it's most I don't think it's so much about what are the best print on demand products, because I honestly think you can use it to create any print on demand product, um, like literally any, it, it, you'll just use it differently depending on what you're doing, right? So if you're if you're if you're more focused on stuff like tapestry bags and things like that, or maybe even mugs, then you might work more with like patterns, and you'll generate patterns in Midjourney. Um, and the great thing is that you can also create seamless patterns in Midjourney, which which is seriously a game changer, and it, it creates really really aesthetic things. So um, so that's one thing that's really good for, but I mean, even the obvious stuff, all of the people, and I know this is not going to be a nice thing for illustrators to hear, especially not in Southeast Asia, but if in the past you've had trouble making your designs, um, like increasing the quality of your designs by complementing your typography with some really aesthetic illustration, well, with Midjourney, that becomes so easy. It becomes so easy. Um, and, and all of a sudden you're capable of producing really high quality products and it doesn't matter whether it's a shirt, whether it's a mug, uh, a hoodie really, really doesn't matter. And, and if you're into doing stuff that has no text, yeah, you can do that too. It's, I mean, the simplest prompts will literally churn out something that is amazing, like really amazing. And that's. And it's not just print on demand, like it applies to so many other industries where you can just use Midjourney and it's not just random images. So um, the the only limit is your imagination, in my opinion. And and the your skill with the prompting, I suppose. Yeah, well, you, you, yes. Sometimes you imagine something, but you struggle to prompt it to get the right result. That's perhaps. true. That's that's true. But I think but I think it's not as complicated as people sometimes think it is. Um my my biggest recommendation to people is to not necessarily look at other people's prompts because from what I've seen is that, especially if you're in the main Discord of, of Midjourney, um, which is the platform on which Midjourney is obviously used, if you're in the official Discord in the newbie channels, don't pay attention to what people are prompting for because they don't know what they're doing. And it's not their fault. It's just that they're looking at other people um, but but once you've understood some very basic concepts about Midjourney and how to structure a prompt, then it is really kind of like using building blocks and and not overthinking it, not injecting these weird words like 8K, 4K, UHD, Unreal Engine, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, that doesn't do either, either it doesn't do anything or you don't, it doesn't do what you think it does. Um, but it's it's mostly also not necessary. Do you have any tips then for people who are currently creating t-shirt designs, for example, in terms of how they should structure your prompts? You know, you said don't put Ultra HD uh, Unreal Engine in there. Um, what what should people try out to get better results? 
So maybe I'll give you a very concrete example, right? So the, a very simple prompt that you can use, and sorry, I just wrote one down earlier, or I was checking my previous work, but one thing that really, really works great is something as simple as t-shirt design on white background so that you can then cut out, cut out the background later on. And then your niche design, and that works mostly with sort of big niches. But so you've got t-shirt design on white background, firefighter niche, flat illustration style, and then ideally a negative prompt that says no mock-up. That in itself will already produce a lot, a lot of really great stuff. And you can replace the firefighter with a whatever else niche that you can think of. You don't need a lot more words. If you then want to get more specific, yes, of course, then you'll replace the firefighter design with something that's more specific uh, for what you really want to see. And then, because otherwise it'll just give you something generic. Um, but but that's that's really mostly all you need. And and then you you cut that out, you vectorize it, and then you add your text or no text, depending on what you're doing. And it really is mostly mostly that simple. It can get more complex if you want to do more, but it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree as well. And I've also found that sometimes simpler prompts work surprisingly well. And that's not to say you're not going to get any results with longer prompts, but I feel like some people make it more complicated than it has to be. If I may um, add one detail there, the reason why I always recommend to start off with shorter prompts first, and maybe even just with a few words initially, is that if you prompt a long, if you add a long prompt right from the get-go, you are probably never going to understand which words in your prompt are the ones that are making a difference or what is basically creating the output that you don't like. The best way to find out what certain words do in a prompt is to incrementally add words every single time. Now, I know that uses up more of your credits, of course, on Midjourney, um, but 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 that's that's kind of necessary to learn. And as you learn more, the more effective you get and the less credits you'll need. So it's, it's, it's a process. And from people who are not starting out, but who are maybe a bit more advanced, have been doing it for a while, is there anything you would recommend trying out, such as working with seeds, working with image references when they're creating printed amount designs, or have you got any extra tips for them? So I don't think that seeds are necessarily, they don't, I don't think that they're really necessary if you're working with print on demand. Um, at least I can't really think of a, a particular reason why, unless you want to recover an old design for whatever reason. Um, seeds are more useful in other in a, in a different context. Um, but I mean, it you you can of course use things like stylization, like if you use the stylized parameter. If you like to have something that starts going a little bit off the rails, <laughs> if you don't want to stick too close to your prompt, so that's something that you can experiment with. Um, and I actually think that print on demand might be a good place to use that, that parameter. Um, whereas in other, in other cases that I work on a lot where you need to have consistency and more control, then they're not really the best thing to do. Um, I, I would also not necessarily recommend starting off by using the, that, that kind of a parameter because it also, because it adds so much stylization and in the context of Midjourney, stylization, stylization means that it will start to interpret your prompt differently than you think for the sake of creativity, then it means that 
what you're seeing is not necessarily directly linked to what you're prompting. And that that kind of, that can kind of prevent your learning experience too. So trying to remove stylization is more effective for learning. Um, but then you can really go go crazy with it if you want to. Um, but then yeah. there's also other things like the recently introduced the uh, they introduced the weird parameter, and that can be quite fun, especially if you're working with like kawaii designs, anything else cartoonish. Um, image references, I would be I would be careful because image references tend to have a strong influence on the the output that you get. And sometimes it can actually prevent you from getting what you need. Um, so at the very least, if you are going to use an image reference for an initial image, um, and if that initial image is not quite what you need because it's too much like the reference, then the next step would be to take that image and use the very strong uh, feature on that because that will then take the, the the essence of that concept and just spin it around and give you a more crisp output, but without using the reference. So that's uh, a yeah. potential workflow. That that's a good tip. So if if you've got an image reference, the new AI image is too close to the reference. Use yeah. the very very yes. button yes. to get a different variation. That's but make sure similar. that you remove the like, make sure that you remove the image reference in the in the remix prompt. Then yeah. Ah, interesting. Um, and in terms of the general process for print and demand sellers, which I always hear questions about, I think people are quite confused. Once they've got a mid-journey image, do they then vectorize it? Do they upscale it? Do they remove the background before or after? Like people are so confused as to what to do next, I feel like. So what would be your recommendation in that case? I think it it, it largely depends on what you're trying to do, right? Like what is, what's your objective with the design? If you want a very versatile design that you can basically use forever, scale to whatever size that you need with limited quality uh, loss and all that kind of stuff, then I would definitely vectorize it. Uh, and and if you do that, then I mean the rec the best practice approach is to remove the background first and then use a vectorizer. Um, some vectorizers will do that for you already. Um, but, but that's, but that would generally be my recommendation. Now with vectorizing, the old school way would be to do it with Adobe Illustrator's image tracer, which yeah, is, uh, it was okay for, for it what was, it was, yeah, <laughs> it was okay. It was okay. That I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but, but nowadays there's actually, there's quite a few, uh, tools out there that do a much better job. Um, and are a lot more user friendly as well, um, but but if you, if you, such as, so such as for also, the one that's very well known now recently is Trace Journey. Trace Journey is very convenient because it's a Discord bot that you can use straight within Discord, and it's I think it's very appealing for the particularly for the less tech savvy um, people. Um, that that does cost money though. Um, there are free alternatives on the web. So for example, vectorizer.ai um, does an excellent job. Um, and it's... But 
but it's becoming paid soon as well, 3rd of is September. It? Yeah, it? okay. it's still in beta and that's what it's free. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing tool. Like I use it all the time too. But yeah, if you're watching this in the future, it might not be free anymore. My, my gut feeling tells me that Trace Journey uses Vectorvisor AI's API. That's uh-huh. my gut feeling. It's just my gut feeling, but uh, who knows? Possible. Maybe if the prices go up in September, we'll know. <laughs> You'll, yeah, you may, you may, you may know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of removing background, because again, there's like a, there's a million different ways to do that, and yeah. I, th- I feel like people really struggle with that, um, especially if they've got if they've got more complex graphics where the outline isn't really clear. Like, have you got any suggestions there in terms of how to do that best? Yeah, yeah. So, so Trace Journey does that as well. Uh, so that's interesting for everybody who who either doesn't have a Mac or uh, or just wants to stay within Discord. But for anybody who has a recent Mac, you can just take any image, go to the file in the Finder, right-click the file, go to the Quick Actions uh, menu item, and then choose Remove Background. And then it removes the background. A lot of people are not aware of this feature. Um, and I wasn't aware of this until a few months ago either. But it is really good. It is really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's free. It's straight in the OS. That's really interesting. For, yeah. for people who have an Apple, like yeah. um, for Windows people, obviously that doesn't work. But no, if, if you've got a Mac, definitely check that out. If, yeah. if it get, gets good results, that's a good alternative. Yeah. For, for Windows, um, unfortunately, I, I, I don't have a recommendation because I, yeah, I switched to fun. Mac uh, 15 years ago. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. No worries. Well, I'll give a few recommendations then. Obviously, if you want to put an extra time and get more accurate results, use something like Photoshop, Photopea, do it manually. I, I have got that covered in, in different videos. Or um, there is ClipDrop, which is a, a free website where you can do it with files up to 1,024 by 1,024 wow. pixels, um, coincidentally. <laughs> um, you can do it there for free and get really good results. And my designs also has that same background remover from ClipDrop integrated in bulk um, and it gets the same great results. So that is a bit easier to do, but it's not always going to be 100% accurate. If you want to be 100% accurate, try and learn how to use Photoshop or Photopea, yeah. um, I would say. So on the topic of tools then to help with mid-journey, um, do you have any other recommendations? Because I know you've got one yourself, which I've mentioned in a video, yeah, it's, um, it's it's kind of the only tool. You so I I don't I don't use many other tools related to Midjourney itself. Um, just because I'm a I'm a bit of a purist, so I I just like I actually just like typing. I just type my prompts uh, most of the time. I don't use any other tools really. Um, the the one tool that I do use is a tool that I built initially primarily for myself because I got so tired of copying and pasting the previous prompt that I wanted to reuse. And, and then I go down to the, it was just, it was so tedious and cumbersome. And so I decided um, to use my uh, limited coding skills with plus some help from ChatGPT um, to uh, build a Chrome extension that was very simplistic at the beginning and just Matt allowed me to copy the entire prompt and then just paste it in. Um, but then people started noticing it in my videos and then asked, oh, what is this? Like, where can I find this? Where can I get this? And then I decided, okay, maybe I need to make this a little bit more professional. And then I built the prompt a lot, uh, Chrome extension, um, 
And uh, yes, it sounds like a reference to uh, Camelot, and it is kind of a, an inside joke, but, but it's mostly about prompting a lot. And um, and it's available as a Chrome extension. It's it's for free, um, and it's it's it works. The extension works by itself and does everything it should do. It allows you to copy certain sections of the prompt, sometimes just the image prompts or just the text prompt, the seed. But it also does does a whole bunch of other things now, like. It makes it really easy to delete your designs to just a click of a button. Um, some people want to upscale all four images with one click. Does that too? Um, and then it's essentially also just a helper extension for um, my other project, which is the Prompt Lot website, which right now is still somewhat limited, but it's meant to become a repository for all of your prompts, workflows, like a, a central management platform for you. Um, yeah, that's, that's the one that I use because it saves yeah. a lot of time. Yeah. And I've, I've started using it as well and it is really, really handy because that's what mid journey lacks. I think is yeah. shortcut buttons, easy ways to save prompts, stuff like that. Um, so it's nice to have a platform that can integrate quite seamlessly with mid journey or discord. And that is also free. Like that's obviously the best part. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll, We'll leave, I'll leave a link to prompt a lot in the description, which is where you can find the actual browser extension and uh, the place to save your prompts. So yeah, that's, yeah. Maybe, maybe just as a, as, as a small disclaimer, the, you can save your prompts all for free. The only limitation that people may want to know about is that um, the amount of private prompts that you can save is limited at some point. It's limited 100, at 100. So as soon as you want to go way beyond 100 private prompts, then there is a small sort of subscription fee, but it's you don't need to choose it. You can just if you're happy to have your prompts public, then uh, then there's no issue. Then it's 100% for free, and that adds value to the platform as well because some people just go there to discover prompts, right? So hmm. so th that just as a disclaimer for everybody. Yeah, yeah. and a hundred prompts is a lot of prompts, so <laughs> well, that is a lot of free free private space let's say if i so. look at some of my users it's not a lot no okay <laughs> what's the what's the top the top uh directory of prompts is so it thousands or no not yet but the top guy that's 700 700 wow yeah yeah, yeah. crazy um someone's <laughs> been using up their credits for sure <laughs> um so here's a question that i see all the time on my youtube videos because i do print and demand plus my journey quite a bit as well and that is now that everyone's got mid-journey, now that everyone can create these nice quality designs so easily, does that mean the market is oversaturated now and there's no chance of you know, succeeding? I think it's, it's almost the same question that everybody who is afraid of AI is asking, just in a different context. And I think the answer is also the same those people who are willing to embrace the technology learn how it works will be able to significantly increase their efficiency and the quality of their output and they will always be able to compete in that market if if, if they're willing to learn and understand the constantly changing rules of the game as well um, and if you want to stay long term in this business it's always going to be like that. You're always going to have to adapt and 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 learn new things. I don't think it's oversaturated. I mean, people have been. We, we talked about this before before the just before the, 
it's it's never saturated in that sense because people have been asking this for years. Every year, people ask the same question: Isn't it already oversaturated? Like back in 2012, I'm guessing yes, people are yes, already it, asking this. Yeah, it, it's it's always the same thing, and it's and if, and yes, is there is there more supply than there was 10 years ago? Of course, there is. But the question is: Is there also more demand? Yes, of course, there is. Is it in the same sort of ratio? I don't know. I can't tell you. It depends. But it's if you're good, if you know what you're doing, and if you're willing to go the extra mile, you will always be able to compete. I don't know what it will always be that you'll need to do to compete because that will change. But you, but you can. And I've seen people get into print on demand just a couple of years ago, and 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 now they're making hundreds of thousands, uh, literally on just on merch by Amazon. And and yes, so what they did is they learned how to use ads. Okay, kudos to them. They learned how to use ads, and 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 the old guys who never wanted to learn how to work with ads. Well, yeah, sorry, that's it's kind of the game, right? Um, hmm. it, it, it it is a function of your input. It's not a one hundred percent perfect correlation because you know some people are more predisposed with their skills and talents and experience. But if you're willing to put in the work and you and you work smart, like do it in a clever way, you're always going to you find untapped niches. You're going to find new topics, new trends that weren't there two years ago. And and you can capitalize on those. All the yeah. Time. And notice how we haven't mentioned designs in this discussion when mid-journey is a design tool, right? So people yeah. are thinking now that they can design stuff, they can become successful when there's so much more attached to it, which they don't maybe just don't know yet because they've only just started hearing about print on demand, print on demand. But that, yeah, there's just so many other vital processes that are involved besides just designing that mid journey is definitely not the print on demand killer, which makes everyone else like everyone obsolete. It's, it's, it's a stock platform killer. That's what it is. It's, it's, that's what it is primarily in my opinion. It's a stock, it's a stock platform killer, but but again, I think it's also people need to look at it differently. Think about what it took a person to compete in this market two years ago, three years ago. At some point, if they if they're not an illustrator themselves or they're not talented in design, but they're good at research, they still not needed to find some illustrator, maybe in Southeast Asia, who would help them. That would cost money, a lot more money. So that's a barrier, and but they still did it. Now. You don't need that anymore. You don't need. You can invest your time and maybe your your small mid-journey subscription, the basic one, which is not expensive, and you can now do so much more. That means you've actually reduced the risk that you need to take in order to test this business model, and I think that's a great thing. So I wouldn't focus on. I wouldn't so. I wouldn't focus so much on is it saturated. No, just give it a try. And then you'll see, yeah. you'll notice. Yeah. Cover some ground, like we said at the beginning yeah. with the oil oil example. Yeah. You have to spread out designs into different niches to see where you might find some oil. And yeah. whether whether you do it with mid-journey or with Illustrator, Photoshop, whatever, um, yeah, mid-journey makes life easier in a sense that way. Yeah, I think it's a big advantage for everybody who is good at research. It's a big advantage. Um, mm-hmm. It just... It eliminates one of your other problems that you had before, yeah, and yeah, and and it will supercharge some people who just are creative. 
because they'll just produce so many great designs. And um, you also need to think about how the ability to create so many designs makes it easier for you to experiment as well because you are able to cover so many more niches in a shorter period of time. So, and of course, others can do the same thing, but this brings us back to what we talked about earlier. How many people are willing to do that? You need to be willing to go the extra mile because everything that has value is a bit difficult. Everything that has value is a bit difficult. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Discomfort creates comfort. Like you yeah. don't have to struggle uh, to create value. That's yeah. that's definitely sure, uh, definitely true. And an, another analogy I wanted to bring up here with the whole uh, mid journey thing is that maybe I mean I don't know for sure, but maybe when the smartphone came out and people got access to like everyone got access to high quality cameras through their phone, basically, maybe people then were scared. Right now, now everyone can be a photographer. Now, photographers are just pointless, right? But we still have photographers because most people don't know how to actually use their cameras and their phones, how to get the right angles, the right lighting. There's so much more to it, which once again, just because someone has a mid-journey doesn't mean they can be successful at print and demand. You need to go a lot deeper through a lot more struggle than just writing a prompt, uploading the design, and that's it. Like that's, it's just not going to work. So yeah, mid-journey is just a tool. It depends on how you use it. I think, and and you and you just always need to adapt, right? Be be adaptable. That, that that applies to to everything in life, not just print on demand. I mean, um, just I mean, in two thousand thirteen, I wrote this this the small ebook, right? Because I had I had time, and I thought, okay, maybe write down my sort of story, share some insights. And there's a quote at the very end of that ebook that says, "Adapt or die," and and that's so true. It's so true. If you adapt you will be fine. If you are not willing to adapt, then you need to accept whatever consequences that may have or may not have. I don't know. It'll be different. But I think the flexible people are the ones who usually always make it out somehow. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great quote. Um, so lastly, then, do you have anything else in the works with Promptalot or any other tools, plans uh, for Midjourney? Yeah, so within the limited amount of time that I have every week, since I always I kind of try to put out one video at least per week, and uh, it doesn't it isn't as easy for me as it is for some people because I just I don't just cover news. I try to actually do some in depth stuff in Midjourney. Um, is I try to work on prompt a lot right now because just because I'm seeing how I've been a bit overwhelmed by how many people are using the extension now, so it, it I'm feeling a little bit of the pressure. Uh, <laughs> And also the pressure to actually um, evolve the the product into closer to what I have in my head than what it looks like right now, and and I honestly think that there is, if I'm able to build what I have in mind, and it's going to be completely tailored towards my like my specific needs for the things that I see that have value and that are needed, then I think. It's going to be really, really useful for a lot of people, other people as well. And we're still very early in the process. And it's, it's, I'm kind of learning on the fly what is needed and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so do I can't tell you what it's going to look like. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you have any, do you have any sneak peeks of like anything that's coming soon or will be added to the tool or? 
Do you well, want to keep it secret? Well, there's a couple of things. I, I do have a roadmap that, that is public that people can okay. check. It's not super sophisticated, but it, it's a little bit based on what people are requesting. Um, so two things that, that I am planning on putting in is, uh, first of all, the ability to easily split um, like an image grid into four, um, which it's not a big thing, but some people seem to want to have it integrated into the extension and it's not too difficult for me to do. Um, then there's another thing that some people have asked for the ability to sort of have a retractable um, bar because some people find it a bit intrusive. So I will probably build that, but because the bar is also kind of a little bit of advertising for me, it's um, it, it might be a, a paid feature. I don't know. We'll see. Um, and there's one other thing that I'm working on, and I think I almost cracked it. I'm not. I'm not quite there, but it's very difficult to automate the prompting process. So right now, you still need to go to the text field hit the slash, enter imagine, and then paste in the prompt. Hmm. And I have managed to figure out a way to technically do it with a click of a button, and it works. Oh, really? um, it's it's just a bit challenging because it requires some user-specific um, tokens and identifiers and stuff. So I need to find a way to integrate that in a way that will be, um, how do I put this? So that feels secure and safe to the user and they don't have like, so that they don't need to have the idea or feeling that I'm going to be, have access to that or something like that. So um, I'm very mindful of um, like the privacy and then permissions thingy. So uh, I'm trying to find a way how to do it in a very elegant way. Okay. Once, so, so you, once I get that. So you could do it, but it's not, not how you want it yet. It's not proper. I, uh, I, I can do it for myself right now. Because yeah. of course there's no limits, um, but it's it's very difficult to translate it into a into an elegant process that is easy to use, mm. and but 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 I've managed to do it. Yes, so it's basically just cool. a direct API call, and boom, it just prompts. That's really cool because that's yeah. actually one one thing I also thought it'd be really nice to just be able to paste a prompt without having to do all of the imagine stuff. Um, or just click one button to bring the imagine prompt up. Well, now um, imagine I could either, I could technically do this from the prompt a lot website. I wouldn't uh, have you. You would have to be. Um, you wouldn't have to be doing this within the Discord window either. So, cool. yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it took it took me a while to figure out. Um, I went on a scavenger hunt, but <laughs> yeah, really cool. Do you? I mean, you're still in the process of figuring it out, but do you have an estimate on when it might become no. possible? No, no, no idea. <laughs> no, no, okay, no, mainly, no pressure. No, mainly because <laughs> I I need to build some um, some internal UIs within the extension for for like uh, when you're on when you're in Discord that will allow you to kind of manage that data that I need from or that that I need from you, but that the extension needs from you, and um, I'm like nowhere close to figuring that out yet just because I don't have time yeah. but no worries but trust me I'm trying to get that to work yeah yeah <laughs> no problem all right where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or about prompt a lot mid-journey yeah so you you can find me on YouTube at uh, tokenized AI um, or you can find me on X formerly known as Twitter <laughs> at Chris Heidorn <laughs> um, and I'm also on LinkedIn um I'm mostly active right now just on YouTube at the moment just because I've had other priorities. After that, it's kind of X, Twitter, 
and uh, soon maybe also LinkedIn. We'll see. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. I'll, I'll leave the links to those in the description for easy access. And it was great talking to you. A lot of valuable insights for both print and demand and mid-journey, um, which is super cool. So thanks a lot for coming on to the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, um, we see you later. Bye. Yeah. See you soon. Cheers.